before we begin, we just have a small message. A lot of you loved Rabia Khadr in season one, and we request all of you to please have a look at her organization at deansupportservices.ca. That's deansupportservices.ca. Dean is a registered Canadian charity and they're doing an amazing job. They serve all individuals with disabilities, regardless of religion, language, and culture. Please support them in whatever way you can. Also, I have to mention, this is not a paid promotion. We tell you this because it's a cause we believe in. This is Mifra Abid, and you're listening to Across Her Table, a podcast where we talk to amazing Canadian women with immigrant roots and how they're shaping the social narrative in this country. Join me as we talk to change makers from across Canada and listen to their remarkable stories. It's no big secret. I recently moved from the Greater Toronto area to the city of Kitchener. And I came here knowing no one, almost like a new immigrant all over again. My season one guest, Rabia Khadr, was kind enough to introduce me to some friends here, one of them being Fawzia Mazhar. Fawzia is a faculty member of the Conestoga College, but more prominently, she's a founder and executive director of the Coalition of Muslim Women of Kitchener Wadlu. This is a federally registered non-profit organization advocating for Muslim women's voices. Recently, they received a federal grant to continue doing grassroots work to foster greater inter-community understanding. All of this is of course great, but for me, Fawzi was first a friendly voice in a strange new place. You were one of the first people I called when I came to Kitchener. Do you know that? Um, I think you mentioned that, but the interesting thing was that I already knew you. Uh, I was keeping an eye on you, your podcast and stuff like that. You know, my interest in Muslim women in general. So um, I found your podcast quite interesting and I had seen your name on, especially on social, social media. So um, you weren't complete stranger to me. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. So you've been in Kitchener for almost 21 years. and. You founded CMWKW. I'm going to call that Coalition of Muslim Women of Kitchener-Waterloo. Correct. Why did you think there was a need for such an organization in the first place? So the organization is started as a response um, to what we now call the forefather of uh, Bill 21 or the laicity law in Quebec. Um, so basically at the time in 2010, it was the first time that National Assembly in Quebec uh, proposed to effectively ban Muslim women who cover their faces from obtaining, obtaining and delivering government services. But that wasn't the only thing. There was also a lot of negative political rhetoric about Muslim women in general and uh, um, also the environment, not only in Quebec, but also in uh, the rest of Canada at the time was quite toxic as well um, in terms of especially the widespread support that that bill, that Bill 94, had across Canada, which is not the case with with the 
new development now. At the time, it was actually quite horrifying to see uh, where things were going. So a number of us, a number of uh, women in uh, Kitchener-Waterloo, we came together and it was like, okay, like this is something which is really worrisome and we need to do something about that kind of an, a responsive coalition of women and men uh, from Kishan-Waterloo who came together to provide a community response. And eventually we've, we, we agreed that these challenges a lot of time are happening because larger community may not have the opportunities to get to know Muslim women. So they only know us through media, through stereotypes, through what they see, but not through us. So we agreed that Instead of waiting for things like Bill 94 to happen again, we should work proactively to provide opportunities for Muslim women and the larger community to come together and learn about each other in kind of like safe and fun environments. And that's where the organization started. And very soon we realized that we should have public speaking skills, leadership skills. We should be able to articulate ourselves, express ourselves. Um, so this is how the organization is started to work. It's it's kind of amazing that a bill that was passed in Quebec could have given a rise to so many grassroots organizations elsewhere. It, it only shows that how much of a trickle-down effect racist narratives have sometimes and what kind of impact they have on communities and people you know, across Canada. It's the survival instinct too, right? Like it took 10 years in Quebec to bring like, you know, their efforts to where they are now, where it has proven to be quite difficult um, to to challenge. Um, so just imagine like, Quebec and Ontario, they're just like bordering each other, right? And you know how um, things are going in terms of the rise of um, far-right extremism and political rhetoric and everything. So it's actually quite scary to see how easy it is. And the other part is that outside of Canada, people don't recognize the distinction between Quebec and the rest of Canada. So Canada, which is seen generally around the world as a beacon for like, you know, human rights and, and uh, you know, a model for multiculturalism, a model for integration um, of, you know, newcomers and immigrants, then we feel like it's a stain on Canada's international reputation. These things are not just isolated in Quebec. Uh, we see Canada as a collective identity. You know, the, it's very interesting th thing that can see surveys and after surveys, Canadians in general, like we see ourselves as welcoming and we, we see multiculturalism as one of our, one of the things that we actually take great pride in, right? So there is this collective identity that we hold very dear and then at the same time, there is a smaller percentage or there is a countercurrent where multiculturalism and diversity is deemed as, like, you know, the weakness. And it's like a, a path of self-destruction that Canada is moving on to. And a lot of time, those narratives very much are informed by extremism, far-right extremism, and, uh, of course, the political situations, especially, like, you know, south of the border, what happened, um, really, really have emboldened uh, those narratives, as, as you have been mentioning as well. So, first of all, it's just not isolated in Quebec. It's actually a much bigger problem. 
it's a complex problem. It's not that simple. This is for the benefit of people who think, all right, you've chosen to be in Quebec. You could always choose to live in other provinces. So what's a big deal? You, can, you know, you just move out. Uh, why are you feeling so threatened? As a Muslim woman who dons the very visible symbol of hijab, so as a Muslim woman, what do you say to them? What, what are the fears and what are the, the problems that you anticipate if such a law became commonplace? Let me tell you, first of all, that it's not that easy. Let's say I'm a Muslim woman who is born and brought up in uh, and brought up in Quebec, and maybe even not, but I have Quebec as part of my identity. Do you know what I mean? I see myself as someone belonging to Quebec. It's not that easy for me to just pack my bags and leave. Like, you know, why are people asking me to leave my home? For what? This is number one. Then we have to think about the gender-based challenge, right? In general, when families move, a lot of time those moves are made based on the needs of the men in the family, not necessarily the women in the family. And then the other piece is, what are we trying to say? We're trying to say now that there will be refugees moving out of Quebec because they are persecuted based on their religions? Like, are these people going to be moving to other provinces as, like, you know, intra-country refugees or internally displaced people? Like, do you know what I mean? Like, this is kind of such such a paradoxical thing that on one hand, Quebec is accepting refugees from other parts of the world. And then the very same people, refugees or immigrants, when they arrive in, in Quebec, they have been told that this is not your place either. Because see, this is the slippery slope that you don't want the nation and the country that you love to go on, right? Like today, it's my rights. Tomorrow, it will be the rights of another minority. And then day after tomorrow, it will be the rights of another minority. We are not doing it only for ourselves. We are making sure it's no different from, you know, uh, black communities standing up for their rights at some time. When they stand up for their rights, they're actually also protecting the rights of others at the same time. This was an interesting take that Fozia offered that those fighting for minority rights were actually fighting for the entire society. It sounds ironical till you really think about it. Because what society thrives when a sizable chunk of it gets willfully left behind? Fazia's comment on the state's participation in the issues of minorities was quite noteworthy too. I'm coming, covering my face. I understand you won't communicate with, with me. That's fine. But when a state becomes an actor or the collective of the people become an actor and they say that, okay, we all want to see your face when you speak to us and we have the power to make you show your face when you want to speak to us. That's where the problem is. That's where you see what we call the tyranny of majority. Because if everything is based on the will of the majority, then the communities who are not the majorities majorities can easily be uh, annihilated on the uh, just on the whims of the majority. You actually don't even have to go too far in the history of Canada to understand how the indigenous people of Canada and their culture were kind of stamped out. Exactly, they were literally made to forget 
their language, their culture, their way of living, all in the name of civilizing them. And eventually, we have this whole generation or multiple generation of indigenous people who don't remember who, who they are anymore. I mean, they are to this date grappling with confused cultural identities because we didn't let them be who they really were. Exactly. Exactly. In a pluralistic democratic society, we all enjoy our rights, right? As long as they're not harmful, um, you know, we exercise our choices and that should be okay for people. The problem is starts when people actually start to think that don't change this, don't change that. Well, things are going to change. Like who had imagined, let's say even 30, 40 years ago, that we would talk about falafel and samosas and that kind of food as part of our Canadian cuisine. So when cultures come together over time, these things happen and they're very beautiful. They're beautiful. Right? Like I remember seeing uh, this article. There was a bride, I think, in Toronto during the time of that uh, Raptors big win. And uh, um, the way she designed, like, you know, she got the henna design on her hand, had Raptors logo and, and We the North and Toronto Raptors as part of her mainly design, right? So we have to see where these various traditions are going to beautifully come together and create beautiful things instead of trying to make the same mistake that we have already made in terms of our indigenous people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That is true, because uh, make new traditions, which are, uh, you know, an amalgamation of different peoples and different uh, cultures and something which is uniquely Canadian. Yeah, it happens. Like, look at each celebrations. My family each celebrations are not the same as they used to be in Pakistan anymore, right? Lots of different things have been added, right? Like, you know, we have very specific Eid decorations. And uh, around the Christmas time, we like to do a turkey dinner, right? Like, you know, um, so we cooked, like, you know, I have my own recipe. I call it like chicken tikka turkey. Seriously, it's delicious. <laughs> and then I make mash, I make mashed potatoes and, you know, uh, stuffing and especially the cranberry sauce. I'm going to need that recipe of the Chicken tikka turkey after this podcast is done. <laughs> How about we say tikka turkey? <laughs> that could sell, you know, tikka turkey. I can see the potential in it already. <laughs> I want to seg into something more personal, if yeah. that's okay with you. Fozia, you are a cancer survivor. You don't often talk to, talk about it, but you have not hidden that fact either. I want to talk something about how you battle this disease because I, I can imagine it mustn't be easy. Uh, so first thing, technically, I'm still not able to say that I'm a survivor. That was an interesting conversation that I had uh, with my oncologist. And uh, she said, actually, you have to wait for at least three years, minimum three years, maybe even five to be able to get this, like, you know, distinction that you are a survivor. <laughs> 
But the good news is that what was discovered as cancer has responded very, very well to the treatment. Uh, The tumor was gone with chemotherapy alone, and I had the surgery later on. And uh, after the surgery, the test cleared me from any residual cancer cells in that area. So that's the good news. It's like, you know, one lapse of the journey or the big marathon that I have now in my life is done. And alhamdulillah, that lapse is um, has been completed successfully. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> Good for you. I-, I like how you say that so bravely. But I'm still curious. What is your mindset like, for example, when you first came to know or when you were first diagnosed with it? Um, I think it's hard to say. I, I found out about this in December 2019, and it, it actually progressed very quickly. So, you know, the tumor was uh, growing in size very rapidly. Um, but I think at the time I felt, I felt somewhat numb. I felt like it's not happening with me. It's happening with someone else. And then slowly I started to realize things and uh, there was loss. But I think at I think in the in the initial period, I didn't really go through the grief or the loss that much. Um, basically, as soon as I understood the problem, just because of, you know, how I work, I just focused on how can we like, you know, okay, so what's the next step? What needs to be done about this? And um, in my first meeting that I had with the oncologist where they had a treatment plan for me and the treatment plan was going to start from the next month. However, when um, they checked the tumor and I meant, and we realized that the tumor had grown very quickly at that time, they actually suggested that I start the treatment from the next day right like next day from about a month difference between this meeting and the actual treatment to start it just start it was just going to happen the next day it started to happen next day but i felt such a sense of relief at that moment and uh, and from there that okay now we have a plan and you know we're working on it and uh, that really helped were there any parts in this journey that were harder than others of course i went through peaks and valleys, you know, depending upon where I was. Um, I would say that chemo was mostly, I had about four months of chemo and uh, chemo was, uh, I'd say mostly it was on a high note. Um, I started with a very good uh, basic, like, you know, health uh, condition that I was in. So honestly speaking, like when I look back, I think chemo was a piece of cake, right? I had a lot of family support uh, during chemo sessions until COVID hit. So, um, but then I think surgery was my, uh, the lowest point in that treatment. And uh, I didn't realize how difficult uh, the recovery is going to be after the surgery. Um, I chose a bilateral mastectomy, which is not a very uncommon choice for a lot of women nowadays, but still it's, it's, it's quite like it's a, it's a major surgery. It's, it's radical. So the recovery phase was really long and uh, really draining. And um, I think that was uh, the lowest 
that I was during the recovery period of the surgery. Radiation was okay. After radiation, there were some, and I'm still dealing with uh, some huge complications from uh, radiation. But in general, my energy level is now, I think, 80% of what it used to be before, alhamdulillah. And uh, in general, I feel like, you know, my heart is, again, full of that joy that I think I lost that feeling for a long time, especially after surgery. Like I kept going, everything was normal. I was doing things, I was working and whatnot. But there is something in your heart where you feel like you can, like you feel the joys, joy of like, you know, being in the world. I think that was missing for me for a long time, which I have recently started to feel again. And I feel really good about that. Alhamdulillah, that, you know, um, I feel positive. I feel confident. I feel like my brain fog is gone. And uh, um, I just enjoy being in the world. Alhamdulillah. I'm so happy to hear that. Alhamdulillah. I can I can almost sense your joie de vivre, as they call it. But while you are battling this disease, did you ever ask yourself, why me? Did that ever cross your mind? Like this question, I think all uh, people on that cancer journey ask this question, why me? And depending upon your cultural upbringing and your belief system, that why can take many forms and many shapes. So for me, the why was um so this idea i was thinking oh my god like what did i do wrong in my life like what did i do did i harm someone did i say something you know what happened why that was i think um, a time and uh, i thought about uh, the verse in surah baqara which used to be my favorite anyway always rabbana wala tuhammilna ma la taqata lana bi basically saying that yeah, Allah, don't give me more than what I can handle. That kind of thinking really helped me. And um, so eventually it worked out, but I had uh, I had this internal struggle, spiritual struggle, especially for the first few months. It was really, really huge. What would you say were your strong points? Things that you look back and say, I'm really proud of myself for this. I never feel anything is strong about being a survivor, I never connect with the idea that it was my strength or I'm brave or, I, or I'm courageous or whatever it is that, you know, I fought a battle with cancer. But it's nothing about me. Do you know what I mean? I didn't have any other choice. It came to me and I lived it. I lived through it with all of the blessings that I have. Um, but there's nothing special about me. I think everybody does the same thing. They go through it, right? And I had my low points and I had my, I had a lot of them. It's not that I was riding the wave. Do you know what I mean? I wasn't. I had lots of very, very low points. Like I had a public breakdown one time um, uh, during a meeting. Um, it's, uh, yeah. So I don't want to hear that. You're so brave and you're so courageous and, you know, you fought and you won your battle with cancer or you're a survivor. I'm like, no, it was sent to me as a test as we believe. That's it. I lived through it. That that really puts a lot of things in perspective. I'm glad you share all this with us because things like these can be very personal. So thank you for sharing.
Fazia has been in the field for over a decade now, and I wanted to know what her organization thinks is the best way to tackle Islamophobia. We don't want to say that Islamophobia is a problem of people who are Muslims. We don't want to say that racism is a problem that is a problem of people who are of, you know, people of color or, you know, different races and stuff like that. We see this as societal problems. And the only way to tackle this problem is that society recognize that it is a problem that is actually affecting the society's progress. So we don't want to monopolize working on Islamophobia as a Muslim problem. It's not a Muslim problem. Muslims have not created this problem and Muslims cannot tackle this problem. <laughs> it is, uh, when you turn the question that way, it really makes you think, it actually compels you like, oh yeah. Why should we be at the forefront of fighting Islamophobia? Right? Why should we be? We didn't create it. It's not our problem, but it becomes our problem. It becomes our problem. But if we, if we try to solve it by ourselves, we can never do this. So it's basically the society, the institutions in society, the the civil society. They like you know they need to recognize it's a it's a it's a problem that we're facing as a society. So this is how we try to tackle the challenge as well. Now that you have the grant, what are the next steps for the coalition? In terms of where we are going next, so we will continue to work um, in the area of addressing and uh, hopefully reducing Islamophobia with racism, xenophobia, and sexism with a particular focus on how it impacts Muslim women, especially in Waterloo region. And uh, also we have um, started to focus on gender-based violence, family violence. Muslim women are kind of uh, between a, what we say between a rock and a hard place that they faced violence externally, but then internally they face violence within their own communities and their own their own families. Then the barriers that you face in terms of accessing safety become a lot more pronounced um, in that case, right? Because you don't feel safe at home and you don't necessarily feel safe outside. That was Fozia Mazhar from the Coalition of Muslim Women of Kitchener-Waterloo. And this is your host, Mifra Abid, signing off till our next episode, where we'll tell more inspiring stories like these. If you like this episode, please subscribe to us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts from. We would also love to hear from you. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Or just email us at feedback at acrossatable.com.